For those of you who, who haven't been with us in the past, what we're doing is we're at the moment going slowly or actually quite quickly through the book of Hebrews. We're actually about halfway. And this is a series we've called Elevate Jesus because the pastor is writing to a people, encouraging them to remember who Jesus is. They're, they've been tempted to a degree to, to lessen the importance of Jesus, lessen the value of Jesus, and go to, to other systems of faith to, to have their salvation. And he sa- so he's writing to them and saying, this is who Jesus is. Remember who you have. As we've been going through the book, one of the points that the pastor has been making is that Jesus is our great high priest. And he gets to a point in the letter where he says to the people, look, I have so much more to give you about his high priestliness. But he pauses and says, I can't give it to you because of your own spiritual immaturity. So he's, he's in this space right now where he's challenging them to think, you know, are you really ready for this life of maturing in your faith? And he's continuing on in that this week as we, as we go through um, from verse 3 to verse 20 of chapter 6. And so that's where we are. He's in the middle of that, and he'll pick up again this idea of Jesus being the great high priest in verse 7, or towards the end of verse, uh, chapter 6, but especially in chapter 7. But anyway, if you've got your Bible open, why don't you join me in the book of Hebrews, and we'll read from verse 1 of chapter 6, and we'll read the whole chapter. We'll focus, though, on verse 3 forward, because we looked at those last two verses last week. So the book of Hebrews, it should also be on the slides behind me. The verse two verses won't be, sorry. So just be patient and catch up in a moment. Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And then this is where you should pick up with us. There we go. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation, For God is not unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire that each one of you to, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, He swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. 
So when God desired to show more convincingly to the ears of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The word of the Lord. Let's pray as we come before it this morning. Lord, we're very thankful to be here this morning. We're thankful to be able to come before you. We're thankful to be able to open your word. We're thankful, Lord, that you promised to be present with us by your Spirit. We do pray, Lord, that you would encourage us, that you would build us up, that you would, Lord, that you would, Lord, expose us before the before the words of your gospel truth. Lord, we just pray that if we need to be awoken from our spiritual slumber, then you would do so. But Lord, we pray that if we need to be encouraged in the gospel, Lord, as those clinging on to our faith, you would do so too. We're so thankful, Lord, that that your word does press into the deeper places in our heart. We're so thankful that your word puts us in a position where we can see and understand ourselves better than we once did. Lord, we just pray, Lord, that you would help us to apply what we hear today in a way that glorifies you. We pray that you would do the work, that we might be transformed, renewed, that we might have a greater affection for you. Lord, that even today we might have a, the beginnings of an affection for you, the beginnings of a relationship with you through repentance and faith. We pray, Lord, that you would be with us. In Jesus' name. Amen. As a runner, the last thing that you want recorded against your name is the dreaded DNF, which of course stands for did not finish. As a runner, the last thing you want to do is set out at a blistering pace, find yourself fatiguing and eventually failing. Similarly, as those who have heard and to a degree received the gospel, the last thing we want recorded against our name is DNF, did not finish. To a degree, the Christian life is all about how you finish. It's all about how you finish. Will you make it to the end with your faith intact? Will you survive the test of this life, the test of time, the test of trial, with your faith intact? Or will you too be recorded as one who did not finish? The pastor, as he writes to us, as he writes to the people in those days, as he writes to the Hebrews, wants the people to finish well. He's writing to them to encourage them, to show them, I have this, this great desire that you would finish well. If you cast your eyes down to verse 
11, what you see is him reveal his desire for them. His desire is that they would finish the race, that they would be with Jesus, that they would enter into God's rest, that they would receive the new Jerusalem, the city of God. And his expectation on top of this is that these are people who will get there. In verse 9 to 10, he, he calls them his beloved. He, he says he's sure of better things for them that belong to salvation. He's seen their spiritual fruitfulness. He wants them to finish well. He has this desire and expectation that they would finish well. But first, he wants them as a community to reconcile with one of the most sobering spiritual realities that we are exposed to in the Bible. And that is what verse 3 to 8 are all about. He wants them to finish well, but he first reminds them that finishing is not possible for those who have finally and fully fallen away. If you look back up to verse 1 and 2, what you saw is the pastor saying to the people, you know, go on to maturity, graduate from your, your spiritual kindergarten, finish with the ABCs of the gospel and go on to maturity. But what we find in verse 3 to 8 is he says, you will do this if God permits, verse 3, and you won't do this if you have fully and finally fallen away. He's confident that this is a reality that is playing itself out. And he's saying it's impossible to finish the race if you have fallen away from your faith in Christ. It is impossible to restore again those who have fallen away from their faith. It is impossible for them to have repentance again. Now this is a hard point. It's a significant point. It's a sobering point. But it is a point made all the same and directed towards a community of God's people. A community obviously made up of believers and non-believers. It is impossible to finish the race if you have finally and fully fallen away. It's important to note here, and that's the very reason that I started with, that that the pastor is not using this point to beat up on believers. He's not got his big stick out and he's not trying to stand over the believers with this point to beat them up. It's obvious from the start that his desire and expectation is that they would finish the race. So I just encourage you that. I just want to stop there for a moment and say, as we go forward, as a genuine believer, don't let the devil misuse these words as a stick, as something to beat you up. But at the same time, as the broader church community made up of believers and non-believers, I just encourage you, reconcile with this point all the same. See it, acknowledge it, grapple with it, grasp it. He's saying there are consequences for our choices, eternal consequences for the spiritual decisions, the faith choices that we are making today. You cannot put your faith on pause. You cannot commit to abandoning your confession of Christ, thinking that you'll, you'll, you'll put it on pause today when time is tough, 
and go back to it when times are easy. He's saying you cannot assume that you will be provided with that opportunity. And that is such a sobering point to reconcile with. And he's saying to the community, own this and know this. The reason he is... The reason he's saying this, that we cannot presume upon being provided that opportunity to, to say, I've hit pause for this 10-year period, but now I'm ready to pick it up again, is not because, or is because, in doing so, he is making clear we are demonstrating a disposition towards Christ that is similar to the people who crucified him. If you cast your eyes down to verse 6, he, make the, he makes this point. Let's just read those, those verses together. So this is speaking of the people who have been part of the community. He says, and have tasted, the, if you look at verse 5, and tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to content. He's making a powerful point that in walking away from your faith finally and fully, you are putting yourself in the position both personally and publicly as one who would have crucified Christ. You are holding him up to contempt. The wonderful thing about our God is that he is good and gracious and gentle with all who will confess Christ and come to him. He is good and gracious and gentle to the man and the, or the woman who was once addicted, who was once the abuser, who is filled with shame, who has been guilty, who is weary, who is broken, the person who would say, my sin is greater than any other person's sin. I am more dark than anything else. What we learn about God from the Bible is that he is gracious and gentle and good to all those even in that situation who come to him, who confess Christ. We also learn that the opposite is true, that all those who reject Christ who dismiss the Son and who dismiss his love will experience not his goodness, his graciousness and his gentleness, but the very opposite of all those things. And, and that is what makes these, <laughs> these particular verses in Hebrew so frank and so pointed, and to a degree so hard to come before a congregation of God's believers and preach on. But they're so important. 
the reason these are so important is because these words are directed towards those who have formerly experienced the five-fold blessings of being part of a new covenant community. These words are directed to people who have been part of a church, who have enjoyed the fruitfulness, the relationships, the blessings, even the work of the Spirit. They've enjoyed being part of the church, but they have fallen away. These verses are not directed to the naive, to those who have never heard of Christ and never had a chance to a degree to reject him. They were directed towards those who had externally received the gospel, externally participated in church life. If you jump back up to verse 4, you see the description of those people. They had once been enlightened. They had once tasted the heavenly gift. They had once shared in the Holy Spirit. They had once tasted the goodness of the word, word of God. They had once tasted the powers of the age to come. Like a parched land, verse 7, they had drunk in the rain of God's gospel and God's blessing. Yet they had fallen away. And rejected Christ. And given up on their confession of him. And what the pastor is saying, it's impossible. To come back. And that point in itself is enough to awaken even the most spiritually intoxicated person. He's saying, beware of falling away finally. It is so significant. It is so important. And it must be reconciled with. When you're in that situation where the, the temptation because of the difficulty of your life is to say, maybe it would be easier if I just hit pause on my faith and hit pause on confessing Christ and hit pause on thinking that Jesus is my Savior. He's saying, beware of that reality. Beware of that moment. Beware of falling away finally from your faith. These verses are so pointed and they, they do raise an important question. a question that to a degree many of you would have been asking as we've travelled through the book of Hebrews, and that is this, do these verses imply or teach that even genuine believers can fall away? And in that, of course, the experiential side, with me as a genuine believer, does this mean that there's a possibility that I will fall away? These questions are important. These questions are significant. These Questions are, are, are questions that affect the way that we understand God. These questions affect the way that we come before God, either as, 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 as insecure people or secure people. And that's why we must ask, answer these questions with the answer, no. 
And I want to give you two reasons for that. The first of which we find in the text and the second we find from a broader scriptural sort of sweep. If you cast your eyes down to the agricultural illustration that he gives in verse 7 to 8, we read this. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end and sorry, and its end is to be burned. In this illustration, the land is the broad church community, the wider church community made up of both believers and non-believers. The rain is the blessings that shower down upon both believer and non-believer in the church community. It's the common blessing of God, which would have included, as the verses preceding this would have pointed to, hearing the gospel, hearing the word, and even seeing the work of the Spirit. In this illustration, all receive the rain, but not all produce fruit. Some produce a good crop and receive the blessing of God. Others produce a bad crop and receive the judgment of God. Their fruitfulness is what demonstrates their disposition towards the blessings of God that are common to the community. And their fruitfulness is what reveals their true heart. Genuine believers hearing the gospel, seeing the Spirit, being involved with the community, hearing the word, with their new hearts and genuine love for God, produce good fruit. The alternative is those who are the disingenuous, disingenuous nominal believers who are part of the community, see the Spirit, hear the word, know the gospel, but produce bad fruit. He's demonstrating with the illustration that it is not a genuine believer who falls away, but a disingenuous nominal believer who produces bad fruit and eventually falls away. This illustration is similar, of course, to the parable of the sower in Mark 4, where Jesus is teaching his disciples and he shares about four different types of people who receive the good news of the gospel. The seed that the farmer sprays out upon the land goes out to all people and four types of people receive the word of the gospel. Jesus explains, though, that these four groups receive the gospel in different ways, three of which, of those, three of those groups, of course, subsequently fall away. What Jesus highlights for us, though, is that some even who eventually fall away receive it with joy. There is an initial response, but their heart is not right. There is no root in and of, the, of themselves. The soil has not been prepared, and so they, are eventually, they eventually fall away. What this illustration demonstrates in Hebrews and what is demonstrated in the parable of the sower too is that those who have fallen away 
may well be part of the community. They may well have drunk in the rain, experienced the joy, believed nominally, but they have never been true believers. And this has been demonstrated by their lack of good fruit. What this illustration makes clear is that it is not genuine believers who are falling away. It is those who have been nominally connected to the community. This is backed up, of course, by the broader biblical picture and emphasised through the Bible where we see God's consistent promise of persevering with us. The consistent teaching of the Bible is that genuine believers persevere not because of who they are, but because of who Christ is and because God perseveres with us. Let's jump back to John chapter 10 and read verse 27 to 29. These may well be the most well-known verses as it relates to perseverance, but they are still beautiful and wonderfully encouraging. Jesus here contrasting people who are genuinely his sheep and those who are not. says in verse 27, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus stands with his Father and says of his own sheep, no one will snatch my sheep out of either my hand or my Father's hand. It is God who perseveres with us. It is God who keeps us when we are his sheep. This passage in Hebrews is like a battery. It's held together with a negative, between a negative and a positive. The negative is that finishing is not possible for those who have finally and fully fallen away. The positive is what it looks like to finish well. Let's jump into verse 11 through 20 as the pastor shows us what it looks like to finish well. In verse 11 he says if you are wanting to finish well, you need to have a full assurance of hope until the end. This full assurance of hope was a, was a continued, consistent, clear confidence in the fact that God is good on his gospel promises. The gospel promises are not empty and worthless. They are true and powerful and, and for me personally if I repent and believe. It is having the full assurance of hope that God will keep his future promises too that there will be rest, that there will be a return, that there will be restoration and a resurrection. To maintain a full assurance of hope is to have confidence in the promises of God both for today and for tomorrow. He says, if you want to make it to the end, hold on to that assurance of hope until the end. In verse 12, he complements this by reminding us to finish well is to, through faith and patience, inherit the promises it is not just to acknowledge the promises it is not just to see that the promises exist it is to travel through this life with a consistency of faith and a patience for what is to come
to the point that we inherit the promises. There are some promises which we will experience the fruit of in the future, and that is always going to be the case. And as believers today, to finish well is to look forward to those promises and to make it to the end when we inherit the promises. In a fashion similar to Abraham, who was failable but unquestionably had a consistency to his faith, we are to wait and wander through this life with an imperfect but tangible faith and patience to the point that we will eventually inherit those promises that the Lord has put before us. The promises, of course, center around Christ's return, center around the rest that we will have in him, center around the resurrection that we will experience in him, center around the restoration that we will experience because of him. These promises are made possible because of Jesus' earthly ministry as a saviour, because of Jesus' heavenly ministry as a high priest and a king. These promises we can rely on because they are anchored and grounded in the character of God. In verse 16 to 20, he makes it clear that the reason these promises are reliable is because God is reliable, because God has made them and God is of perfect character. And that is why, verse 19, they provide a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. You know, undoubtedly in this life, we are tossed about by the difficulties and the temptations and the experience of, of moving towards the goal of eternal life. But these promises anchored in the character of God for a future rest in Christ are the very thing that will give us the anchor in that storm. That is why they are such strong encouragement for those who have fled for refuge in him. Believers are anything but naive optimists, clinging to some meta-narrative for comfort in this life. Believers are those who faithfully, patiently hope in the future fulfillment of the promises of God because they are anchored in the character and glory of God and because we have seen God keep his promises for salvation in his son. That is why those who flee for refuge in him have the steady and sure anchor for the soul. This, of course, is not something we sustain by sheer hard work. It is truly something we have sustained for us by the Spirit, by the power of God, something that is kept for us through the intercession of Christ and something that is maintained for us by being encouraged with the brothers and sisters in the church. It is not something we sustain by sheer hard work, neither it is something we sustain perfectly. As believers in this day, just as it was in their day, there, as Charles Taylor put it, are rival stories at the door offering very different accounts of the world. There is much opportunity to doubt. Many Christians go through seasons where they experience the, 
difficulty and tension of temptation to give up on their faith, to give up on hoping in the present gospel promises, to give up on the future gospel promises. We're not a people who maintain this perfection of faith through life, but we are an imperfect people who trust in one perfect man who not only died in our place for our sin, but who lived to provide the perfect life of faith and hope. Our hope is in Christ, and our hope is in his perfect life, the very thing before which we come, or with which we come before the Father. In him we can recognize the consistency of our hope will be imperfect, but it will be provided for in the gospel. At the same time, we are anything but passive. We are called to pursue these things with verse 11 and earnestness, the opposite of sluggishness. He's saying, look, you have fallen into some of you what you would call a sluggishness with your faith. He's saying, these are the things you need to pursue. These are the things that will help you finish. These are the things that will give you that sure and steadfast anchor for your soul. Be earnest about the way you go after them. We also imitate others. We pursue these things by imitating those who through faith and patience inherited the promises. We look around to the the countless testimony of the church where people have run the race, they have, they have finished the race and they are now with the Lord and we imitate their faith and we imitate their patience and we look to inheriting the promise as they have today. The question then we must ask ourselves is this. Are we giving ourselves earnestly earnestly to the full assurance of hope or have we become sluggish? Are we imitating those who through faith and patience inherited the promise or has our model for life been transferred to those outside the church or doing other things? Who are we imitating? The last thing we want recorded against our name is the DNF. So we must be people who with earnestness and with a desire to imitate those who have gone before us pursue a life of faith and hope and, that we, and to the degree that we would inherit the promises the Lord has promised to be with us as we do. Let's pray. Father, we just pray that you would help us to come to grips with these words, the, the, the reality that sits behind it. We pray that you would protect us from discouragement if we, are, if we have a genuine faith, Lord, but just feel like we are being battered about by the storms of life. We pray, Lord, that you would crack 
the rock-like shell that surrounds our heart, the stubbornness to acknowledge our spiritual condition, if we, Lord, are those who are genuinely without a true connection to the gospel, if we are those who are failing to manifest spiritual fruitfulness, even though we're in the church, Lord, would you crack that shell? Would you give us a newness so that we can see Christ, so that we can flee the judgment and hell that is our future outside of Christ, so that we can have the life and the blessing and the rest that is found in Christ. We just pray, Lord, that you would minister to us through your word, that you would penetrate to the deeper parts, that you would undo us, that you might build us up in the gospel afresh. Be good to us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.